All right, good evening. As Gino mentioned, we're in Ezekiel chapter 20 tonight. So you can open your Bibles there if you'd like. The leaders among the exiles in Babylon came to Ezekiel seeking to inquire from the Lord. He was the prophet and they wanted to hear from the Lord. The problem was they were no longer on seeking terms with God. In verse 3, the Lord directed Ezekiel to say, I will not be inquired of you. Let's set the stage historically. It was late summer of around 591 B.C. Egypt was on the move as a military power and had just won a notable campaign down in the Sudan. Zedekiah, the appointed governor of Jerusalem, decided to make a move against Babylon by aligning with Egypt. The leaders who came to Ezekiel were not told, but they probably wanted to seek the Lord to ask if the alliance with Egypt would succeed. It was a presumptuous, rather proud inquiry in that God had already told them through Jeremiah and Ezekiel to remain submitted to Babylon. God's plan was to discipline the nation for 70 years as subjects of Babylon. They were hoping they could circumvent God's plan by playing politics with Egypt. The Egyptian alliance would prove a fatal flaw and lead to Jerusalem's destruction by the Babylonian armies around 586 B.C. Nebuchadnezzar finally had enough with uh, the rebellious attitude of the Jews in Jerusalem. And he came a third and final time and destroyed Jerusalem. Rather than simply answer their inquiry, the Lord told Ezekiel in verse 4 to set forth his case against them. His case is going to be built on their history as a nation. A history that, as we'll see, was filled with idolatry leading right up to and continuing with the generation Ezekiel was addressing. And so beginning in verse 1, it came to pass in the seventh year, in the fifth month, on the tenth day of the month, that certain of the elders of Israel came to inquire of the Lord and sat before me. Then the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, speak to the elders of Israel and say to them, Thus says the Lord God, Have you come to inquire of me? As I live, says the Lord God, I will not be inquired of by you. Will you judge them, son of man? Will you judge them? then make known to them the abominations of their fathers. This phrase, will you judge them, is a way of saying, set forth my case against them or bring a judgment against them or let them know why I'm judging them. Sometimes in presenting the gospel, you need to present a case against a person, a case for their sin and need of a Savior of Jesus Christ. As an example that we've used before, not original with us, but a good example. No one wears a parachute on a commercial flight as a precaution. Now, they won't let you anyway, but I mean, you know, it's just not very common. And as the illustration goes, you know, the stewardesses come by and they pass out parachutes. Uh, how many of you have ever had a parachute on? Kind of hard to sit in an airline seat with your parachute on. Very uncomfortable, to say the least. And so as the illustration goes, at some point you finally take your parachute off because there's no danger really. I mean, I guess if you're an airplane hypochondriac like I am, you've got your parachute and your life vest and, you know, 
you're right, you know, right where the raft is and you keep counting the paces to the emergency door and all that, but uh, you're not going to wear it because there's no need for it. You need to be convinced that the plane is going down and then you might put a parachute on if one was offered to you because you know you're going to perish without some kind of life-saving device. And so there are times in presenting the gospel when you need to let people know why they need a Savior. They're sinners and they're going to perish, uh, but for the uh, grace of God through Jesus Christ. And, uh, uh, you know, however you want to do that, a, a lot of guys use the law. They, uh, it's simple to show somebody that they've broken one of God's laws, one of the Ten Commandments that summarizes the law. And then, of course, if you've broken one commandment, you're guilty of all of them, really. You're a lawbreaker. Uh, and, uh, you know, they're, if people think they're doing a pretty good job keeping the Ten Commandments and you point out to them that they're really not because we're talking about attitudes of the heart. Maybe you've never actually murdered somebody, but you've, you've hated somebody or disliked somebody or been angry with somebody. Certainly you get down further and you have kind of the summary commandment, thou shalt not covet. Well, now everybody's coveted something or someone in their life. And so it's important that we establish with people uh, we set God's case before them, say the Lord loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life and without him you're going to perish in your sins eternally. And so there is a, a place for setting God's case against them. God was going to make known to them the abominations of their fathers in order to show them they were equally guilty of idolatry and rebellion. The word and the world are filled with good examples of bad behavior and its consequences, and we should take them to heart. Uh, there's a sense that we have, I remember it a lot better when I was uh, in the world, B.C., before Christ, where you just think, that's not going to happen to me. My best friend, his friend, my girlfriend, everybody around me, sure, they got picked up for drunk driving, but not me. That's never going to happen to me. Uh, or whatever it might be, whatever the, the, the behavior is. And uh, sometimes even as Christians, we start to think, well, you know, I can dabble here and dabble there. That's not going to happen to me. Uh, and I, I think uh, there are plenty of bad example, good examples of bad examples so that we can be warned uh, that we should pay attention to these things. We should take them to heart. Now, in verses 5 through 9, the Lord discusses the Jews during their time of slavery in Egypt. Uh, one thing you'll note about the Bible, God loves history. Uh, and, uh, you know, there's, whether it's the Old Testament with its history or its genealogies or you get into the New Testament, the book of Acts, especially a lot of the sermons, you know, Stephen's sermon uh, leading up to where he gets stoned. These guys love to talk history and bring up the history of their people and, and give a true and accurate rendering of it. And God's going to say, he's going to go back to their time as slaves in Egypt and establish that in every era they became idolaters and they failed. And he continued to be faithful. And so he starts uh, way back in Egypt in verse 5. He says, say to them, thus says the Lord God, on the day when I chose Israel and raised my hand in an oath to the descendants of the house of Jacob and made myself known to them in the land of Egypt, I raised my hand in an oath to them saying, I am the Lord your God. On that day, I raised my hand in an oath to them to bring them out of the land of Egypt into a land that I had searched out for them 
flowing with milk and honey, the glory of all lands. Then I said to them, each of you throw away the abominations which are before his eyes. Do not defy yourselves with the idols of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. But they rebelled against me and would not obey me. They did not cast away the abominations which were before their eyes, nor did they forsake the idols of Egypt. Then I said, I will pour out my fury on them and fulfill my anger against them in the midst of the land of Egypt. But I acted for my name's sake that it should not be profaned before the Gentiles among whom they were, in whose sight I had made myself known to them to bring them out of the land of Egypt. Now, interesting, these verses provide an insider's view of what the Jews were like in Egypt. We don't really get uh, this kind of commentary even in the book of Exodus. We know about the golden calf they cast and worshipped after they were freed while Moses was up on Mount Sinai receiving the law. But here we learn that they were already idolaters before God ever delivered them. Otherwise, God would not have said in verse 7, each of you throw away the abominations which are before your eyes at a time prior to the Exodus. When they worshipped the golden calf after being led out, it was nothing new. It was a return to what they had already been doing in Egypt. And so very interesting, it begins to show the, the um, power of influence, the power of pressure, as their slaves there in Egypt, they uh, certainly hated, uh, you know, the, the slavery and, and the subjugation, but they nevertheless adopted the idolatry of Egypt during that time. Now, when you got saved, you get saved later in your life, you were described as having, and I quote, turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. That's First Thessalonians 1, 9. So you turn to God and then away from your idols to serve the living and true God. It assumes you were involved in idolatry of some sort, and you were. Thus, there is an ever-present danger that you might return to some idol that you were delivered from. And that's why the Apostle John, in his letter, says, My little children, keep yourselves from idols. You, you, you've been delivered to God from idols. He said, so keep yourself from idols. Don't ever assume you've grown strong enough, mature enough to handle the things that you once held, uh, that once held you rather in their grip. Don't ever presume that you won't fall prey to things just because you grew up on a firm foundation. Those are, those are fallacies that we have. Get saved later in life, growing as a Christian, serving the Lord, doing pretty well, uh, and then you start to think, well, there's some things that I remember from my former life I think I can do them now. Uh, back then, they held me in their grip. Back then, they were a, a, you know, a stumbling block to me and, and they were sin. But now I have freedom in Christ and in and of themselves, they're not sinful. And so I can reintegrate them into my Christian life. And uh, that may even be true, but it, it never seems to work out that way, does it? Uh, the things that once held you hold you again and they, they certainly begin to trip you up. Then there are people who they've been maybe you've been a Christian your whole life. You grew up you have the, the joy of growing up in a Christian home from a young age you knew the Lord and the things of the Lord and, and so you avoided the pitfalls of your parents. Uh, you know, and all and, and there's a again there's a, a tendency to think, Well, I can do 
you know, those things. You know, I, I mean, look at the foundation that I have. Nothing's going to get a hold of me. And so, uh, you know, God is rehearsing this history for us to, to sh- you know, to see what actually happens to people. Uh, it, it happens all the time. Uh, I'll be talking to somebody and then they'll be having some marital problems and... Um, you know, the next thing you know, I find out that either the husband or the wife has a very, very close uh, friend of the opposite sex, uh, usually that they work with, who they have befriended. And uh, that person just happens to have marriage problems, too. And in this, let's say it's the husband and the wife over here and the wife and the husband over here. Well, the husband, you know, his wife, you know, she's just a space cadet. And, and over here, it's the husband who's a nut job, you know. And so, so they can communicate with each other, you know. It's like, and, and if you're a Christian, I've seen this happen with Christian after Christian. It's like you go into this thinking, well, I, I can talk to this person. I can share my heart with this person. I can commiserate with this person. I can minister to this person. Because after all, I would never, never leave my wife, even though I think she's a dirtbag, you know, and stuff, and, and I'm talking about her to this other one. I'd never leave her because I'm a Christian. And, and I would never get involved with this other person because I'm, I'm a Christian. Uh, and it, it's, you're already, you, most of the time you're gone already. I mean, it's done. Uh, it, you know, and, and the next thing you're in love and you're divorced and it's just, it's crazy. And that's the kind of thing God is talking about here. He's saying, uh, you have plenty of good examples of bad behavior. Don't think more highly of yourselves than you ought to. Be on guard. Be careful about those things. Now, God said He was going to destroy Israel, except that He didn't want the surrounding Gentile nations to profane His name. His people were at fault, but He acted in mercy towards them for the sake of non-believers. We're going to see tonight that God is extremely evangelical. It caused me to think, you know, I sometimes wonder, how does the church even go on when you factor in all the scandals and failures? Then I remember my own failings and I'm thankful that God always deals mercifully with me. Through all of our personal and even corporate faltering, the Lord loves the lost and He goes on being merciful towards us for their sake. He finds a way of mercy to discipline us while upholding his holiness. I remember, I don't know how many years ago it was now, but at one point, Jimmy Swaggart was uh, one of the biggest evangelists in the world. I mean, if, if you can say that, I mean, not that there's a title, you know, but he was doing worldwide evangelism and hundreds of thousands of people, or tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands, were coming to Christ through his ministry. And then he fell into sin, sexual sin. There was this big scandal. And you think, how, you know, a lot of people ask, either silently or openly, how can God allow that? How can He allow Him to keep preaching the gospel while He's in sin? And there's a lot of answers to that, but one of them is because God loves the lost. And while He's working with that man or another man like that, He continues to allow His gospel to be preached because He doesn't want His name profaned. And then He deals with things the way they need to be dealt with. And then whenever I think things like that, I really need to think about my own life and think, well, how can God let me go on when I have so many bad attitudes and uh, misunderstandings and, I, I mean, just in my own life? And all that kind of thinking always presupposes that I'm better than everybody else or, or that I deserve, you know, uh, God to overlook my faults and stuff. And so, you know, God says, I, I love the lost. 
And, and I'm encouraged by that. You know, you, you know that no matter how I falter, not that I want to, not that you want to, God continues to minister and He even uses you. How much better that we stay on solid footing. Now, the Exodus stage of Israel's history is described in verses 10 through 17. Let's read that. Therefore, I made them go out of the land of Egypt and brought them into the wilderness. I gave them my statutes and showed them my judgments, which if a man does, he shall live by them. In other words, they were wonderful and powerful and beautiful. Moreover, I also gave them my Sabbaths to be a sign between me and them that they might know that I am the Lord who sanctifies them. Yet the house of Israel rebelled against me in the wilderness. They did not walk in my statutes. They despised my judgments, which if a man does, he shall live by them. And they greatly defiled my Sabbaths. Then I said I would pour out my fury on them in the wilderness to consume them. But I acted for my name's sake, that it should not be profaned before the Gentiles in whose sight I had brought them out. So I also raised my hand in an oath to them in the wilderness that I would not bring them into the land which I had given them, flowing with milk and honey, the glory of all lands, because they despised my judgments. They did not walk in my statutes, but profaned my Sabbaths, for their heart went after their idols. Nevertheless, my eyes spared them from destruction. I did not make an end of them in the wilderness. A couple of observations. Number one, God stated here a couple of times, I gave them my statutes and showed them my judgments, which if a man does, he shall live by them. If you could perfectly keep God's law summarized in the Ten Commandments, you would need no sacrifice or substitute for sin. But the law had no enablement within it and therefore no one could keep it perfectly. No one except Jesus. He was the perfect sinless Son of God who then became our sacrifice and substitute by dying on the cross. So when we get to the New Testament, we begin to realize that the law is given. The law is good. It reveals the perfection of God and if it could have been kept, Internally and externally, you'd you know, have eternal life and need no sacrifice. But the law really shows you your sin. It exposes what a sinner you are and your need for a Savior. Jesus comes, keeps the law perfectly, inwardly and outwardly, and qualifies as that substitute and Savior and takes our place so that we might be saved. Now then God also mentioned the Sabbath at least six times in this entire section. Note the wording in verse 12. He says, I gave them, speaking of the Israelites, my Sabbaths to be a sign between them and me that they might know that I am the Lord who sanctifies them. The weekly Sabbath was and is a special sign between God and Israel, setting them apart from the Gentiles. It was never intended for anyone else and certainly not for us in the church age. It's often claimed that God instituted the Sabbath in the Garden of Eden because of the connection between the day of rest, the seventh day, and creation. Although God, God's rest on the seventh day did foreshadow a future Sabbath law, there is no biblical record of the Sabbath before the children of Israel left the land of Egypt. Nowhere in the Bible is there any hint that Sabbath-keeping was practiced from Adam to Moses. The Sabbath is not a universal commandment to be observed by mankind always. God's intent for giving the Sabbath to Israel was not that they would remember creation, but that they would remember their Egyptian slavery and the Lord's deliverance. It was between God and Israel. That's my interpretation and I'm sticking to it. It's interesting. There, no one kept the Sabbath 
until Israel was given the Sabbath. There, there may have been a day of rest and all of that, but it, you can't, you know, there's no Sabbath keeping in, in, in that sense. And the Sabbath is an ordinance, just like the dietary laws. The dietary laws, as I've told you many times, it wasn't that it was healthier to eat God's way. It isn't God's diet for mankind. God said, you're going to eat this, you're not going to eat that, so that when you sit down, you remember that you're a separated people. And when you're around the Gentiles, they will see that there's something different about you and I'm what's different about you, that you live for me and do as I say. The Sabbath was like that as well. And so we're not under the Sabbath. We've never been under the Sabbath. We never will be under the Sabbath. And when people say, do you keep the Sabbath? I say, sure, actually we keep it every day now because we've entered into the rest of Jesus Christ, into the fullness of it. And so every day is a Sabbath, but it's a Sabbath of worshiping the Lord and working for Him. Now, God reiterated that he acted to honor his name among the Gentiles. Again, I point out God's evangelical. It's not an excuse for us to be lackadaisical, but God sees to it that he is not without a witness to the lost. And so, as we saw at the end of the, the video in the Isaiah verse there, God raised up the Jews to be a light to the Gentiles. And when they failed to be that light because they became like the Gentiles, he said, well, I'm still going to testify to them. I'm going to deal with you as children in discipline and judgment and not profane my name before the Gentiles because I care for the Gentiles and they need to know that I'm God. Now verses 18 through 26 follow that generation which was delivered in the Exodus into the wilderness wanderings because they refused to go into the land for fear of its inhabitants. That whole generation of people 20 years and older except Joshua and Caleb were consigned to wander in the wilderness for 40 years until all of them had died. And so verse 18, But I said to their children in the wilderness, Do not walk in the statues of your fathers, nor observe their judgments, nor defy yourselves with their idols. I am the Lord your God. Walk in my statutes. Keep my judgments. Do them. Hallow my Sabbaths, and they will be a sign between me and you, that you may know that I am the Lord your God. Notwithstanding, the children rebelled against me. They did not walk in my statutes. They were not careful to observe my judgments, which... If a man does, he shall live by them. They profane my Sabbaths. Uh, then I said I would pour out my fury on them and fulfill my anger against them in the wilderness. Nevertheless, I withdrew my hand and acted for my name's sake that it should not be profane in the sight of the Gentiles in whose sight I had brought them out. And I raised my hand in an oath to those in the wilderness that I would scatter them among the Gentiles and disperse them throughout all the countries, because they had not executed my judgments, but had despised my statutes, profaned my Sabbaths, and their eyes were fixed on their father's idols. Therefore, I also gave them up to statutes that were not good, and judgments by which they could not live. And I pronounced, uh, pronounced them unclean because of their ritual gifts, in that they caused all their firstborn to pass through the fire, that I might make them desolate, and that they might know that I am the Lord. So instead of following God's statutes, they turned to those of their fathers, which means those of the pagan nations whose idols their fathers had adopted. It resulted in horrible practices like offering their children as human sacrifices. God gave them up to those things. He let those things play out, giving them over to them that they might be judged for their rebellion. You know, if you're sinning and, it's, and you seem to be getting away with it, it just might be that God is giving you over to it in order that it will be found out so you might be brought to a place of repentance. The Bible says, be sure your sin, unless it's repented of, will find you out. 
it's a, again, it's a fallacy of human nature to think, well, I, I'm sinning in this area and God's not doing anything about it. Yes, he is. He's letting you. He's giving you over to it. God is willing to say, if this is what you want, then have it. But it will lead to the things that I told you. It will lead to ruin and destruction and all of that. And eventually you wake up one day and you're found out in it. Maybe not found out by everyone, but you're found out in your own heart and you realize, you know, what happened to my life? What happened to my job? What happened to my family? What happened to my children? While I was thinking that God was looking the other way. And so the Lord is rehearsing this history for them and for us so that we'll learn. After the wilderness wanderings, once that generation had died, came the conquest of the land of Canaan. Verse 27, Therefore, son of man, speak to all the house of Israel and say to them, Thus says the Lord God, In this too your fathers have blasphemed me by being unfaithful to me. When I brought them into the land concerning which I had raised my hand in an oath to give them, and they saw all the high hills and the thick trees, there they offered their sacrifices and provoked me with their offerings. There they also sent up their sweet aroma and poured out their drink offerings. Then I said to them, what is the high place to which you go? So its name is called Bama to this day. Therefore say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, are you defiling yourselves in the manner of your fathers and committing harlotry according to their abominations? For when you offer your gifts and make your sons pass through the fire, you defile yourselves with all your idols even to this day. So shall I be inquired of by you. O house of Israel, as I live, says the Lord God, I will not be inquired of by you. What you have in your mind shall never be when you say we shall be like the Gentiles, like the families in other countries, serving wood and stone. And so as this section ends, as his look at the history ends, really the more things change, the more they stayed the same. Those who settled the land continued in the same idolatry that those in the wilderness had had and those in the Exodus generation had had and those in Egypt had had. Notice God says to them, shall I be inquired by you? The point is, no. It wasn't that they were being judged for what their fathers had done. They were doing what their fathers had done. They were doing it willingly and willfully. And so the, the elders who came to inquire of the Lord, to seek of the Lord, you might think, well, that's a great thing. They're coming to seek the Lord. But while they came to seek the Lord, they were idolaters. They were sinning against the Lord. They were refusing to repent. Jeremiah in Jerusalem had said, submit to Babylon. Ezekiel in Babylon had said, submit to Babylon. And their inquiry was, how's this thing with Egypt going to work out? Are we going to get to go back to Jerusalem and do more idolatry? And so God says, will I be inquired of by you? No. And then he shows them how they are just as bad as every previous generation. The faithfulness of God shines in this dark story. He declares here, what you have in mind shall never be when you say we shall be like the Gentiles. That's God's way of saying He was going to overrule and keep His promises to them despite their rebellion, but without violating His own holiness. Uh, it didn't happen in that generation, but they... You know, God preserved them and has preserved the Jews throughout history and right up into the present day. They're in the land. They're still not believers as a nation. But God says, look, you're never going to be like the Gentiles. And, and that's really what their idolatry was all about. 
They, they said, well, God said, you're my special people. I've chosen you. I've given you the prophets. I've given you the word. The Messiah is coming from you. You're altogether separate and holy and different. And they said, yeah, we want to be like the world. We don't want to be your special people. We want to be just like everybody else. And God said to them, that's never going to happen. And, and though they rebel and continue in their rebellion, God says, I have a plan. That's never going to happen. Here's what's going to happen. This is how I'm going to deal with the Egyptians. This is how I'm going to deal with the wilderness generation. This is how I'm going to deal with the uh, folks who conquered the land. This is how I'm going to deal with you. This is how I'm going to deal with everybody after 70 A.D. Eventually, I'm going to send my son. He's going to, have, he's going to be rejected. This is how I'm going to deal with you for 2,000 more years until the second coming of Jesus Christ. God says, hey, it's ne- you're just never going to be like the world. And I like that because, you know, once you become a Christian, and sometimes all of us, we have these longings for the things of the world, you know. I always joke about it because, in, you know, when they're out in the wilderness, the Jew says, oh, we miss the onions and the garlic. We, we don't have, you know, we've got manna. It's kind of a cool thing to have manna. You know, you didn't have to fight the lines at Walmart or anything like that. I mean, think of it. There's no shopping really. You just go out every day and you get your manna. Bake it, boil it, you know, roast it, barbecue it. Who knows what they did with manna, but they had manna all the time. And they say, we don't want manna. In Egypt, we had onion, garlic. Now, I can identify with that. I said, how about some garlic manna, you know, I mean, or something like that, you know. But, but they wanted to, they always wanted to go back to Egypt. There's part of them in the sense of a diet or a, 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 a you know, a, an idol or a day or something. There was always something about Egypt, something about the world. And in every generation, the, the Jews, ah, there's just something about that. Now, you and I, we are called out of the world. And, and in each of our lives, there's just something about the world that, that just still always beckons to us. And God says to us, you are never going to be like that. You are never going to be like you were before. And so try as hard as you might. I'm just not going to allow it. I will discipline you. I will do what I, I will bring you to your knees if I have to. But you're just never going to be like that. You're going to be miserable trying to be like that in the first place. And it's, you know, God knows that we're throwing off something great for something base and carnal. And so I love this word. He says, you're just never going to be like that. And so there ends the historical indictment. God intended that they turn to him from idols. But in each era of their history, they had returned to idols from him. The current generation was no different. And they might even be the worst considering they ought to have learned from their previous history. The Jews in exile were in no position to be seeking the Lord. That is, they were in no position to be seeking him to change his mind about what he'd already told them. They should be changing their minds, which is what it means to repent. Whether you were saved later in life after being an idolater or whether you've been a believer since a young age and never really gotten involved in idolatry, the world is always beckoning to you. Let's keep ourselves from idols and in a place where we remain on seeking terms with our Heavenly Father. Amen?